Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, if you will all turn with me to Mark chapter 2. And uh, parents, you may dismiss your children to Children's Church if you so desire. It is a privilege to be here this morning. I uh, always love, uh, I love this church. So I love being able to have the blessing to proclaim God's word this morning. So, um, and Pastor Bob is on vacation. He'll be back next week and we'll start a sermon series on the five core values of our church. So if you are new to the church or recently attending uh, and you want to know more about the church, stick around for the next five weeks and you will know lots about our church and what we believe God has called us to. So, um, well, if you have the passage with you this morning... Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Will you stand with me as we read God's word? He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Father, would you bless your word this morning, and would you use me, a broken instrument, to proclaim your holy word? Would you come, Holy Spirit, and would you teach us this morning that we would be transformed, that Jesus would get all the glory, and that you would build your church? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this summer, Whitney and I and the boys were in Chicago on summer project with crew, just a summer missions trip with crew. We had 38 staff... 30 staff kids, and 49 students. And we worked primarily on three campuses in the city of Chicago, sharing the gospel as much as we could. I helped lead the team that went to the University of Chicago. It's a really hard campus with great intelligence and prestige, but it's also one of the darkest campuses spiritually I've ever stepped foot onto. We shared the gospel as much as we could, as much as people would listen, And about 40 people heard the gospel at that university. And no one trusted Christ. No one decided to follow Jesus. As a project as a whole, we shared the gospel over 200 times. And by God's sovereign mercy and grace, 13 people entered into life and began to follow Jesus. Why? Why did these people follow and others not? Why did no one at the University of Chicago choose to follow Jesus? Why doesn't your friend or your family member follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Or why don't you? Well, most basically, people follow Jesus because Jesus calls sinners to follow him. Jesus calls sinners to follow him. To unpack this this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Levi first from our story, the sinner, then Jesus who calls, and finally we're going to take a look at Jesus' call upon our own lives. So first, Levi, the tax collector, 
and sinner. Levi's introduced to us in verse 14, and we see that he's sitting at the tax booth. Now, before we move on, Levi here in our text is the same as Matthew, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. We see this in the parallel account of this story in Matthew chapter 9, where he's identified as Matthew. So, I'm going to use Levi because it's in our text, but if I mess up and say Matthew, I mean Levi, all right? (laughs) So, he's sitting in the tax booth. What does this mean? Well... Levi is a tax collector. That's pretty obvious. And that means he's hated. Now, I suppose no one in any generation likes taxes in all of human history. But especially in Israel, at this time, there is a problem with tax collectors. You see, these were Jews who were willingly working for Rome, who ruled over Israel at this time, and they would collect taxes for Rome. Working exclusively with non-Jews would have been enough to kind of exclude them, but there's much more. You see, in a sense, they're helping Rome rule over Israel by allowing them to pay for it. So how this happened is Rome would contract out uh, the tax collecting to chief tax collectors, like Zacchaeus, who we meet in the Gospels. And then Zacchaeus, men like him, chief tax collectors, would contract that out to smaller tax collectors on the totem pole, and men like Levi. Well, that's a lot of middlemen. And for middlemen to make more money, they have to lie and cheat. So let's say that Rome wanted 10%. Well, maybe the chief tax collector like Zacchaeus would say 15, and maybe Levi would say 18%. And no one would be able to argue it, because Levi's here sitting at his tax booth, and we find out in verse Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, that they're in Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, which is where Jesus has done a lot of ministry. So his tax booth is probably located right at the crossroads of town, and he's taxing goods from fishermen and other travelers and taxing their goods. And no one can argue with him the price that he sets. Tax collectors were not allowed to testify in Jewish court. They weren't allowed into the temple to worship. And some extra-biblical Jewish texts actually say it's okay for a Jew to lie to a tax collector. That's how much they're hated in Israel. This is why in verse 15 we see that Levi, when Levi invites Jesus to his home, he's surrounded by other tax collectors and sinners. He could only hang out with the other sinners and outcasts in Jewish society. Well, what does it mean that he hung out with sinners? What, is, what does that mean? We, we've got tax collector now, but what does sinner mean? Well, sinner is a bit of a catch-all group, but it could include those who disregard the traditions of the Pharisees, and it could include those who are involved in open public sin, like drunkenness and prostitution, and those who are ceremonially unclean. Think of the term in the Psalms, the wicked, That's what this means. It's those who are far from God. So this is Levi. He's a sinner. He's far from God, and he's among those who are far from God. Now, as I thought about Levi, I tried to think, who in our generation is seen like this across the whole scope of the religious community? Well, certainly there are those who are far from God intellectually, hardened atheists, the Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins of the world, or those closer in your realm, the professor or the colleague, 
or the family member who intellectually is hard to the gospel. Or there's the partiers, the frat guys and sorority girls, the promiscuous ones at school, that girl that sleeps around, the ones that are getting drunk, that crowd. And then there's the LGBTQ community, the gay community. When it comes to our modern generation, there's probably no more polarizing group of people, hated by so many, loved by so many. Maybe this is the crowd that seems furthest from God to the church today. Maybe this is the type of crowd that Levi would have hung out with. I can't think of a community of people who would feel more like Levi does, feeling hated by the religious people of the day. So this is Levi's situation. This is Levi for us. But then Jesus comes. That could really just be the tagline of the Christian faith. But then Jesus. The unique and scandalous caller. In the midst of all of this, Jesus, I did this several times when I was looking over this, Jesus, the plural of Jesus, I guess. Jesus, this rabbi, that's what I was trying to say, Jesus, this rabbi, this traveling, teaching, healing one, sees Levi in verse 14. He approaches him and says, follow me. What is this call? Well, it's Simple. Follow me. Yet at the same time, it's authoritative and utterly unique. He's not calling Levi to follow his teaching or his philosophy or his credentials, his ideas, or even to follow the Torah, the law of God, but to follow him. He's not saying follow God, but follow me. Because in that call is a call to follow God. Just the way that Jesus calls his disciples to himself shows us what Jesus thinks about himself. Unique and authoritative and fully God. The call is also all-encompassing. With a call like follow me, a yes to this is a yes to anything Jesus asks or demands. Even death. It's not an easy call. It's a call for all of Levi's life. If it was a call to follow five things or these eight steps or these seven principles, well, that's easy. I just do those things and I'm good. This is the case with all religions and philosophies throughout the world. Obey these five pillars. Follow these paths to life. Do this and be a good whatever it is. But Jesus is unique. Christianity is unique because the call is far greater. It's a call to all, your whole life. Whatever he calls you to, whenever he calls, wherever he calls you to go, it's a call for your whole life to follow him and what he says. But why is this all-encompassing, unique call So scandalous. Because we see in our text instantly, right, in verse 16, the other crowd that loves to follow Jesus around, to call him out and to criticize, shows up. The scribes and the Pharisees. Why are they so angry with Jesus? 
Well, it's not really the call specifically that they're angry with, but who it goes to. To Levi, the tax collector, and his group of sinning friends. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The word here in Psalm 1 for sinners in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, is the same word in Greek for sinners in Mark. Jesus is not walking in the counsel of the wicked, nor is he standing in the way of sinners, nor is he sitting in the seat of scoffers. He's reclining at table with sinners. That's why this is scandalous. He's reclining at table with sinners. Reclining at table with someone, extending them that intimate setting is a big deal in this culture. This is Jesus accepting them as friends and inviting them into relationship with him. Again here in the Gospels, Jesus is putting himself in a compromising position. Fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners is on par or even worse than touching lepers. Now, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus is violating Psalm 1 and is in sin. No, the scriptures testify that he was without sin. And Psalm 1 goes on to talk about the righteous one who meditates on and delights in the law of God. That's Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees that are scoffing at Jesus here is not an indication of Jesus' error, but an indication of their own. It is certainly scandalous what Jesus is doing in one sense. But in another sense, it's exactly what he should be doing. And that's how Jesus responds with, to the Pharisees. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus turns to them and says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can you imagine going to the doctor when you're ill, you wait in the waiting room and finally you get in to see the doctor only to be kicked out because this is a physician of the healthy. I only heal perfectly whole people. That makes no sense. That's pointless. A physician is there because there are sick people. That's what Jesus is saying, but he takes it a step further than physical sickness. He says, I've come not to call the righteous or the well, But sinners were the sick. Now, this is not a compliment to the scribes. He's not saying, don't worry, you guys are totally fine. But I really need to be with these guys because they're the people that really need Jesus. No, this is more of an ironic slap in the face to those who think they are righteous. He's saying you stand outside when you should be in here. Your question should not be, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But why am I not eating with him? Well, how about you? Who do you relate to in this story? Because this story, like the other stories in Mark, is designed to confront the reader and make you ask, what will I now do? Who will I now be? Will you be like this tax collector, or will you be like the Pharisee? It's not really the options you wanted, is it? (laughs) 
So how will we respond to what Jesus calls us to? Well, first, what does Levi do? He gets up from his tax booth. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. In some way, he's come to recognize his need for Jesus, and he follows. He does what Jesus says. Another way of saying this is he repents. Repentance is simply a turn in direction. It's a turning from going this way to going that way instead. It's a turning from a life lived under your own rule to a life lived under the authority and lordship of another. Levi was not following Jesus. He was living a life of sin, lying, cheating, and stealing, and now he's following Jesus. Not perfectly, but following Jesus. That's a huge change. That's repentance. We also see the idea of repentance come up in Luke's account of this story. In Luke's account of this story, whoops, there we go. In Luke's account of this story, Luke chapter 5, verse 32, when Jesus gives his pronouncement to the Pharisees, what we just looked at in verse 17, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying that all calling of sinners is a call to repentance. So Jesus' call to Levi is no different. He's calling him away from something and to himself. And Levi follows. This really is the most basic description of what it means to be a Christian. One who follows Jesus. But what does that entail? What does it look like? Well, following Jesus entails many things. But as we close, I want to look at three things in particular that this means. The first is forgiveness. The stark uh, contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector or sinner is picked up several times in the Gospels. And this story here in Mark may remind you of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about a tax collector and a Pharisee. The Pharisee proudly walks into the temple and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I give my tithes. But the tax collector stands far off. He had to. He wasn't allowed into the temple courts. He can't even look up, and he just cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus tells us in this story, that this man goes home justified while the Pharisee is not. This tax collector is forgiven. This tax collector is made right before God. This tax collector, this sinner, is washed clean by God's mercy while the proud, righteous Pharisee is still dead in his sin, the sin that he claims not to have. The scribes and the Pharisees in our passage are like this Pharisee. God, we don't eat with sinners. Thank you for not making us unclean like this man, Jesus. The Pharisee doesn't think that he needs forgiveness. But God's word and Jesus' rebuke to them and to us would say otherwise. 
You're just not that holy. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the problem with the Pharisee is that they compare their holiness to everyone around them. Not to the Holy One, the all-consuming, purifying fire that is our God. The King of the universe who flung the stars into place and knows them by name. If they would but lift their gaze from themselves to God, the God of glory, they would cry out for mercy because they're not holy. But the tax collector, Levi, he needs mercy and he cries out. He follows. What about you? Are you a sinner here this morning? Do you need mercy? You cannot be too much of a sinner. The gay community, those who have had sex outside of marriage or before marriage, murderers, cheaters, thieves, liars, Jesus takes all sinners who repent of their sin, turn direction, and follow Jesus. That's the scandal of God's grace. And not only does Levi see his need for forgiveness, he gets it. Jesus forgives him and forgives all sinners who repent of their sin, turn, and trust in him. Why? Well, not because sin is not a big deal. No, but it's because his mission was to seek and save the lost. And he does this by going to a Roman cross and being crucified. And there God gives him our sin and punishes Jesus so that justice is satisfied in him that we might receive mercy. Not only that, but we're given his perfect record, forgiven and counted to be perfect in the sight of God. This is scandalous, huge, merciful grace. 2 Corinthians 5 says it best, 521. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, what mercy. But maybe you're thinking, you're sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, sure, if the God of the universe incarnate in Jesus walked up to me and said, follow me, I probably would. Well, don't be so sure. The Pharisees missed him in our passage, and many missed him in that day because they were blind to their need and unwilling to repent and bear the cost of following Jesus. Well, God's still in the business of calling sinners to follow him today. But not by walking up to them in Jesus and calling them to follow him. No, he does it in the same authority by his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word is calling you today to repent of your sins and trust in him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then the call for you today is to do this, to trust in Jesus. Cry out for mercy for your sins and see an accurate diagnosis of who you are as spiritually sick and in need of a physician and recognize Jesus as that physician and trust in him, follow him, and be forgiven. And if you are a follower of Jesus, a Christian here this morning, the call for you is to continually do this. 
to recognize your sin, repent, and trust Jesus each day. The second thing that it means to follow Jesus is knowing Jesus. The Pharisees here are walking around following Jesus to call out what he's doing wrong and what his followers are doing wrong. But Levi, this tax collector, follows Jesus to know him. Again, in Luke's account, it tells us when Jesus is reclining at table that Levi invited Jesus to this feast. Why did he do that? Because he enjoys Jesus and wants to know him. What about you? Do you stay around the church just so you can be told about the sinners out there and keep your distance from them? Is Jesus just your way of getting what you really want, a safe, happy, peaceful life? Or do you really want to know him? Knowing him and loving him and following him means obeying wherever he goes, wherever he calls, whenever he calls. To whatever he calls? Is your view of Jesus just too small? The third thing that this means is making Jesus known. The Pharisee scoffs at those Jesus would associate with, but Levi doesn't just make this big feast for him and Jesus, right? He invites all his friends. He invites these people because they're the only ones he knows. And he's met someone who calls sinners to fellowship with him, who forgives, transforms, heals, and saves. He found someone to follow and wants everyone else to follow as well. He didn't wait to be trained till he had everything figured out, till he was holier or more mature. Instantly, his supernatural response to knowing Jesus is seeking to make him known. God calls sinners. Everyone has to know this good news. Come and hear about this man, Jesus. Well, again, what about you? What about me? Are we people known for being friends of sinners? See, the challenge for us in this is to hold on to the truth and build relationships with those who are far from God, those who do not know Jesus. One without the other is worthless. If you know all the truth about Jesus and don't invite others to know Jesus, well, first of all, you probably don't know all the truth about Jesus because he says that's his purpose. And what good is it? If God is calling a people to himself, if God is all about rescuing the lost, the truly and really lost, but you're not, doesn't that scare you a bit? To not be about what God's about? That scares me. If you have no desire to make disciples, no desire for people to come to know Jesus, and the only thoughts that you have, I qualify that only, because there are times, the only thoughts that you have of lost people are, God, come judge them now and get them out of my way so I can go, get on with my peaceful life then you should seriously examine your heart to see if you know Jesus. There's just no example I see in Scripture of someone who encounters Jesus, who enters relationship with the living God, and then doesn't seek to make his Lord known. Disciples make disciples. It looks different for every person, 
But Levi here just takes the simple step to say, I want my friends to know Jesus. First thing to do would be to pray for a desire that your friends would know Jesus. And God is faithful and will give it to you. But on the contrary of that, right, if you have tons of relationships with people who do not know Jesus, but you never call them to follow him, then you're not really a friend of sinners either. A friend and a fellow sinner, a spiritually sick person who has found life and does not show the way to that life is no friend at all. So will you, will I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, embrace both of these truths, holding on to the truth about Jesus and who he, excuse me, who he is, and building relationships with people far from God. Will we hold on to these truths and be a friend to sinners because he was a friend to us? Well, why should I respond like Levi? Why should I follow him? Why does Levi follow? You know, to be honest, when, I, when I've read this passage in the past, it's kind of this, like, is Levi just this, like, creepy zombie robot guy? Jesus says follow. He's like, nah, I will follow. No. And it's not this blind, naive, reasonless faith. Remember, he's sitting at a tax booth in Capernaum. This is a place where Jesus has done a lot of ministry. And in the story just before this, do you remember what happened? Jesus heals this paralytic. So imagine Levi just sitting at his tax booth, minding his own business, or really minding everyone else's business. And he sees these four guys carry this paralytic on a mat by him. This well-known town paralytic. Then a few minutes later, he sees the paralytic running down the street, carrying the mat over his head, saying, Glory be to God. He saw a transformed life and thought, if Jesus does that, I'm following. I'm in. Transformed lives are the evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. Well, this summer, after our time in Chicago, Whitney and I spent a week in Colorado with, uh, for the crew staff conference. And we heard there from one of the staff. Her name's Holly Melton. She wrote this down in her book, Follow My Lead. The story of her when she went on a summer project like Whitney and I were on in Chicago, when she was a junior in college. She was in Ocean City, New Jersey, seeking to share the gospel with as many people as possible. And one night, it was really late, about 11 o'clock at night, they were on the boardwalk, her and some friends, singing some worship songs, and a girl walked up to her, wearing all black, wearing a Marilyn Manson t-shirt, black lipstick, and black fingernails, and said, my name's Christy, and I'm a vampire. Are you scared of me? Will you talk to me? Holly was taken aback a bit, and just said, well, sure, let's talk, and uh, prayed a quick prayer, said, Holy Spirit, guide me, I want to follow your lead, I don't know what I'm doing. So they started to engage in a conversation, and Holly was like, well, Christy, what makes you a vampire? And she said, well, I participate in animal sacrifices, and we drink the blood. She showed her the scars on her wrists and said, I've tried to kill myself three times, and I bleed and bleed, but I don't die, so I think I'm immortal. And she said, the sunlight affects my eyes, so I sleep all day, and I'm awake at night. So Holly again prayed, and Asked God to speak through her, and she began to build some bridges with Christy and find out 
what she, what she was about, what she was longing for, and then she began to share the gospel with her. And she recounts in her book that this was the most gruesome gospel presentation she ever gave. She figured blood was important, so she talked a lot about Jesus' blood. So after she's done sharing the gospel, Christy's not really all that interested. It's about two in the morning at this point. They talk for a few hours, and Holly looks down at her watch and says, I've got to go, but if you're interested in talking more, we can meet up maybe tomorrow. And Christy says, well, will you give me a ride home? Holly thinks, that's probably not a good idea by myself. So she invites her friends, and they get in the car and start driving home. Christy's sitting in the back seat and just starts knocking on the window. Holly thinks that's a bit creepy, so she says, Christy, what are you doing? She was like, well, I feel like someone's knocking on my heart. I'm just knocking back. Holly's reminded of some scripture and says, I I think that's Jesus knocking on your heart. He wants to come in. He wants you to follow him. Christy says, I feel really hungry and thirsty, but I don't know what I'm hungry and thirsty for. Holly says, Jesus promises to feed with righteousness those who are hungry and thirsty for it. And he promises that he's the bread of life. He's calling you to follow him. And Christy says, pull the car over right now. In case I die on the way home, I need to become a Christian right now. So they pull the car over. Holly gets in the back seat, re-explains the gospel, and makes sure that Christy knows what she's signing on for. And Christy trusts Christ that night. Her heart's regenerated. She becomes a believer. The very next day, they get together again, and Christy comes up with her Marilyn Manson t-shirt on again, and she says, will you teach me how to share my faith? Holly's like... Christians don't even want to learn how to share their faith. But all right, let's do this. So they go out on the boardwalk and they bump into this 13-year-old boy. And the first thing this boy says is, well, how do I know that this is true? How do I know that it changes anything? And Holly's thinking, like, what theological thing do I need to say to this boy? And Christy turns to him and says, yesterday I was a vampire. And today I'm a born-again Christian. And boy, do I feel the difference. Transformed lives are evidence that this is really true. Jesus really does call sinners to follow him. This isn't just a sham. Jesus is real, and he really calls people, sinners, to follow him. I don't see any vampires out here this morning, but the point of that story is it doesn't matter how far you are from God. Jesus is calling you as a sinner to follow him. And he's calling you ultimately not to a philosophy or a way of life. That's not the driving force. But he's calling you as a person who invites you to the intimacy of eating and drinking with him. To table fellowship. Intimacy and relationship with the one true God of the universe. You get Jesus. And he's so worth it. He's an incredibly unique physician who doesn't just heal from a distance, but who heals our soul sickness of sin by bearing it in our place on the cross and conquering over it from the grave. So this morning, sinners, come and follow Jesus. He calls, and he who calls is faithful. Pray with me. Father God, Would you work this morning by your Holy Spirit, send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to Jesus, that we would follow him and love him. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.